sometimes old things hold a lot of value. It is true that I like fancy hotel rooms, but honestly, I get the best sleep sleeping at my friend's old beach cabin that still has quilts and afghans that his grandmother and probably his great-grandmother made. The cabin smells of old wood, seawater, and late loud nights of laughing, playing board games and euchre, and quiet early mornings staring at the crashing surf while the others are still asleep. And it is also true, I am grateful for the prescriptions that help my autoimmune issues. But honestly, I have gotten far more lifelong health from Paul Pitchford's book, Healing with Whole Foods. Herbalists and traditional nutritionists know a lot that is lost to modern medicine. Today's episode is about slowing down and realizing the good to be found in the natural past, so that maybe we can embrace it in our hectic present. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. This month's giveaway from Dynamico Mycorrhizal Inoculant is a little bit different than how we normally do it. The first 200 people to follow the link on the Shaping Fire Instagram profile or on the Shaping Fire website page for this episode and fill out the form on the Dynamico website will receive a free 20-gram package of Dynamico. You don't even have to pay for shipping. I have used Dynamico for five seasons now and it clearly, drastically improves root growth. Young plants grow faster and more efficiently. New soil matures more swiftly mycorrhizal networks expand and thicken welcome to episode 111 you are listening to shaping fire and i am your host shango los my guest today is jeff nordahl better known on instagram as jade nectar jeff has been studying cannabis natural medicine and psychedelics since his teens he has a background as an early internet entrepreneur but became seriously ill in his 30s only to find out he had contracted lyme disease Conventional medicine held no solutions for him. Jeff turned to cannabis medicine in his home of Santa Cruz and started getting results. He became an expert on the acid form of cannabinoids and cannabis leaf juicing and started a local medical collective to get it in the hands of patients. Jeff Nordahl now holds 11 patents for using cannabis as food, though he doesn't like patents and got them defensively so no one could ever tell him to stop juicing cannabis leaves for patients. He is presently building out the Jade Grove Farm and Wellness Center deep in the Santa Cruz Mountains. He also has grown more landrace varieties of cannabis than anyone I've ever met. During the first set today, we will discuss the difference between landrace, wild, feral, heritage, and hybrid varieties of cannabis. In the second set, we will learn about the cultivation demands of landraces, hot and cold adapted land races, and hear about some of the more exotic morphology and terpene profiles Jeff has come across. And during the third set, we will explore breeding with land races and finish the episode with a discussion of land race preservation. Welcome to Shaping Fire, Jeff. Hey, 
Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's Excited so great to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. You know, um, uh, ever since I came across your Jade Nectar profile on Instagram and started uh, watching your tours of all the land races in your garden, um, you know, I, I, I immediately kind of became a fanboy, I must say, just watching your videos. I'm like, oh, look at that plant. And oh, look at that plant. And it was it was like um, the same reason I love going through botanical gardens, right? It's just once you fall in love with plants, you know, I started with the cannabis plant, but then that love kind of got, became all plants. So to be able to see lots of varieties of a plant together, it's it's really like nerdy nature fun for people like us who cultivate. Oh, yeah. But then to see your Instagram where it's just one after another and they look different in the colors and, you know, you, you've got a bit of teaching vibes about it. You know, you kind of tell us about the plant and everything. And so, um, I, so I just started as a fan and a follower. And then after I went through enough of your videos over time, I'm all like, oh, dude, I think, I think, I think this would make a really great episode. So I'm really grateful that, that you, uh, you accepted my invitation to come on the show. So thanks for that. Well, cool. And uh, yeah, if you're enjoying it through the video, <laughs> just through the interwebs, uh, yeah, you should come out in person sometime. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't take experience. Well, thank you. It doesn't take much of an encouragement to get me to come to Santa Cruz, one of my favorite places in the world. So, all right, man. Well, let's get right into it. You know, um, when people talk about land races, people use that word kind of like a a bucket, right? Because um, a lot of people don't understand the idea of land race or or where that definition begins or ends, and then it <clears throat> then it starts to get mixed in with other words like you know like heritage and heirloom and and you know varieties and and so the the definition is is a bit muddied so so let's let's kind of talk around this idea um and and tease out some of the interesting meanings especially somebody like you who who spends their whole time you know in the land race world i, I can imagine you would have a different take on it so so, yeah. so so why don't we just go ahead and start with like the word land race and and why don't you get us started there yeah, yeah. So, uh, land race, and I had to do my own research as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it it is interesting that even different industries and such have different definitions for what land race is. But it it turns out that uh, land race, I believe, I should look this up, but I think it's a German word for land ross i think so that means uh and that translates into english like country breed so uh right off the bat land race is domestic these are domesticated uh varieties but you can also have land race dogs land race pigs chickens cucumbers melons um so it's nothing specific to cannabis whatsoever it has to do with uh, just agriculture or animal um uh breeding and, and what, but what it is and why land races are unique is they're actually tied to a specific region. Um, so there's this interplay between, uh, so let's say a cannabis plant shows up in um, some area, let's say in, I don't know, Thailand. Um, so there you've got a wet tropical environment. Uh, and, and the people who want to grow the cannabis there are going to be now uh, breeding with with their cannabis, uh, taking cues from the environment over time. So uh, let's say they grow 100 plants. 
Um, but 50%, if it were, let's say, a, a, like an Afghan or arid environment uh, genetic that, that came to this village in Thailand, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, probably half of them would mold because they're not uh, adapted for uh, all that moisture and humidity. Uh, but the humans would start picking, you know, and taking the seeds from the plants that actually fared pretty well. Um, so now there's human selection going on <laughs> to find those uh, seeds or those genetics that actually thrive in their local environment. Um, so once that gets established, as far as something that can actually survive and make it to the finish line and produce, you know, flowers without melting down, uh, now the humans might start selecting more for effects. <laughs> Say, I like a really, or like those, that culture may actually appreciate a very energizing, electric, psychedelic uh, effect in their cannabis. So then they start selecting uh, for that. So now you're starting to infuse cultural values <laughs> and cultural utility into this plant while also uh, uh, selecting for things that actually thrive um, in that environment. Uh, so that's that's kind of the interplay with uh, for land race is it happens over time with uh, pressures from the environment and also uh, the aesthetic and uh, desire and utility of the humans who are growing them. And because, and if these were isolated from all other cannabis plants, uh, you can imagine over, you know, generation, generation, 50 generations, a hundred generations. Now you're going to have a very unique uh, cannabis variety. That's unique just to that particular, let's say village. <clears throat> You know, um, you know, Jeff, I think I'm going to set you up for your next definition because, um, you know, you've already surprised me. The definition of land race already is not what I thought it was going to be because um, I was under the impression that land races were untouched by humans, that we had yeah. like as soon as you said domesticated, I'm like my my eyebrow goes up because I'm like domesticated. No, 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 no. Yes. Yeah. And so this is one of the biggest, biggest. Uh, I, I don't know where. The genesis of this. Am I talking was, about wild versus land race? You're talking about wild or feral. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so land race is a hundred percent influenced by humans. These are domestic. So, so if we want to start talking analogies here, start thinking um, as far as dog breeds. So, uh, if anyone's familiar with, let's say, Anatolian shepherds. <laughs> or Kangol dogs. These are uh, these big uh, sheep uh, protector guard dogs that are used in, in the Anatolian mountains in Turkey, and they require a very large uh, dog to fight off wolves and bears. Uh, they need to be very independent. Uh, they actually go out with the sheep without any humans, and will just watch after the sheep, but also go and hunt and provide food for themselves. Um, but the Anatolian shepherds, it's not a specific, uh, standard breed that, you know, <laughs> has to be 16 inches from tail to snout or any of these standard breed dimensions, uh, within the Anatolian shepherd or Kangol, uh, type of dog, uh, 
uh, you actually get all different color types, all different uh, variations uh, and such, but they're but at the same time they're similar and they perform a utility, which is guarding sheep and being independent and also uh, being able to handle the environment. So they have a really nice double coat that keeps them insulated in the winter, but uh, cool in the summer. Um, so, so that's an Anatolian shepherd. You also have things like huskies, uh, Eskimo dogs. You'll see there's tons of variants in those dogs uh, between each one. So you've got a lot of genetic diversity, but it's also bred by humans to pull dog sleds. Uh, but there's no, uh, you know, like kennel club sitting there going and measuring the dogs for specific traits. It's, and so though, those are actually considered land race dogs. And you can apply the same thing to carrots, cucumbers, pigs. <laughs> uh, so I, that, I find it very interesting that uh, now, now in my head, um, a, a cultural use and uh, human intention is now part of the land race definition for me. Oh, and that, absolutely, and that's a and that's a surprise for me. So, so let's let's move forward and 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 have you talk a little bit about the the feral and wild type, which is what is in yeah. my head as land race. Okay, and here's another thing. This is, um, and by the way, I have read websites, cannabis websites that just kind of become these echo chambers that just poach other information and just keep repeating the same fallacy yeah. over and over. And for some reason, there are cannabis websites that do define land race as wild, untouched by humans. And that well, is the we all know that most of the cannabis websites are garbage anyway. They're just yeah. people trying to throw up content so they can sell advertising, you know? Well, so, so right off the bat, just land race is fully domestic. Just do a Google search of the definition of land race and you'll find out the first thing it says is it's a domestic breed. Also, so honestly, even more important than that, like you're friends with Rob Clark, right? So your definitions yes. are bounced off of Rob Clark, the god of cannabis genetics. So Ex like I'm going to go with what you're going to say more than what I'm going to read just about anywhere okay. else. Okay, so here's, here's another thing and I don't want to get in like pissing matches with people who <laughs> say, oh no, it's, it's wild cannabis and such. So I just want to, luckily, I'm very fortunate and honored to have um, uh, developed a bit of a relation with uh, Rob Clark, and he came out and visited. He's been out to our farm now uh, three times, um, just no particular agenda. We just like hanging out. <laughs> you know, we got 300 land race varieties all growing in the same garden, so it's kind of just sort of wonderland. Uh, for folks, yeah, it's it's a cannabis that, amusement yeah. park, is what it is. <laughs> it really, it's stoner fantasy land, um, and it's just so. Anyway, he was kind enough to also uh, send an email with his uh, takes on these these definitions, just to clear things up. And uh, and yeah, I'll if if okay, not to be super boring, I'll just read a few sentences from from his actual email. I hope this, he said it's okay to share this. But, yeah, sure. So uh, long as they're not too long, we'll go ahead. No, and no, them. no. But right off the bat, land races are essentially locally adapted plant and animal varieties that in, that evolve in response to natural environmental selective pressures in tandem with simple human selection 
for favorable characteristics without formal breeding. So um, it says all domestic plants and animals originated from wild populations evolving naturally. Once humans entered the scene, the first steps towards land race evolution began. So, so there you go. So it's not, Mm. it's not a, uh, just keeping one line of, of breeding a particular genetic for just, you know, like that ultimate, um, seed or clone. Uh, it's not a narrow breeding project. It's a, it's a big, large, wide sort of open pollination, usually type breeding project but then selecting most likely what would happen is then you go and select the seeds from the plants that finished the best out of let's say a whole patch like a large field of cannabis and then uh, the ones that made it to the finish line and then when you sample them they're awesome and you go ah i want to grow the seeds from this plant next year (laughs) so that that way the human is now very much influencing and selecting for their traits. So that that is the land race. And then the other part that's really important is, uh, is that they're unique to that region because now they've been isolated in that physical geographic region for so long that they're now like totally unique compared to, uh, you know, land races in other parts of the world. Right on. So, yeah. so we've established land race good. Let's move forward yeah. a little bit. Now, are, are wild and feral synonymous, or are those individual ideas uh, too? No, and we're good. And if, as far as running the analogy, the dog analogy, uh, what what feral is is it's domestic cannabis that has escaped the farm, and now it's off growing wild, but it's not actually the true wild original cannabis variety so it's like uh, post farm wild yeah so this would be like uh in australia if we're doing our dog analogy here this would be the dingo right so the dingoes were in a domestic dog that was introduced into australia i think like four thousand years ago or, or so and then it went totally feral now it's actually part of the ecosystem in australia but it was never actually a wild naturally occurring wolf um Mm. it was it was actually it was never indigenous it was brought in correct and it was a domestic dog that then went uh feral and now is part of that environment so cannabis is very adaptable and such so if it escapes the farm and by the way in the midwest in the u.s we still have uh ditch weed that's escaped hemp from the hemp farms you know the early 1900s and so that's still growing but when when a plant goes feral it's now doesn't have that human uh infusion or intention going on with it so now it's now it's just the plant doing its thing with its only motivation is to keep making more seed Mm -hmm. so most likely when you have feral populations um the taste, the potency of THC or whatever cannabinoid you're going for is the, you know, the plant doesn't even care about that. <laughs> it just wants to make seeds. So now you're going to get, you know, a hardier, more adaptive for survival and reproducing plant for the cannabis plant. But uh, probably the desirable human traits are going to start fading on those uh, feral populations. 
Um, right on. I, I identify with Farrell. I think I'm falling further and further out of normative society as well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, exactly. So if, if you went full off the grid and, uh, went and lived in a hut or a cave <laughs> out in the middle of the night and started raising a family and such like that. Yeah. You, that would be the full embrace of it. You'd be then more adapted for hunting and gathering and not, uh, sitting at a at computer media yeah yeah <laughs> all right so let's contract contrast then that to wild which would be the which would probably be a plant that is uh, indigenous to that biosphere but has never been domesticated and farmed exactly and the thing is is most likely so and again this is uh, from robert clark who also has uh sort of combined all of the cannabis research. Uh, he's got a, a great book. Um, I think it's called Ethnobotany, Cannabis Ethnobotany. Mm -hmm. uh, that, yeah, it goes and actually, it's very information dense. So, yeah, it's uh, a it's heavy a, duty read. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a casual uh, sit by the fire kind of thing, uh, but it is a really, really, really a great resource for going. And he, and what they've done is just tracked and basically agree with all these other um, uh, botanists and scientists and ethnobotanists who've tracked the original origin of cannabis seems to come from what's now geographically in China. Uh, and that is where the original wild cannabis seemed to originate from. But because cannabis, domestic cannabis, was cultivated and used for 10,000 plus years in that same area, it's highly unlikely that the original wild cannabis didn't get crossed with domestic cannabis at mm -hmm. some point. So to differentiate the true wild origin cannabis from uh, feral domestic cannabis, uh, it, it's kind of almost impossible to do that. And most likely uh, it went extinct through hybridization with other uh, domestic varieties over the past 10,000 years. So, right mo so my, most likely the original wild cannabis no longer exists. All right. So then to cap off this line of definitions, why don't we finish off with polyhybrid and then we'll start talking about morphology. Okay. And then one other one that's part mm. of this is uh, also heirloom or heritage All right, varieties. Good, good. So, and that's more, uh, those would be specific breeding projects. A lot of times sort of like, uh, we've got it going on in California, especially up in Humble and Mendocino and such. Um, actually was just reading about some of these, uh, the Huckleberry Hill farms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> By the way, I got to sample some of their, uh, white thorn rows. Uh, which I guess is getting a lot of attention right now. And that was, that is the only like cannabis from a dispensary uh, that I've sampled in the last few years that was like, wow, that's really, that took me back to like Grateful Dead parking lot, kind bud. <laughs> like, <laughs> old school, really, really, really beautiful cannabis. So, um, but I looked into their story and such, and I think, lot somewhere in that lineage he calls it uh like mom's weed 
So that would be like heirlooms where families actually have worked and developed their own, you know, strain and pass that down through the generations to like family and friends and such like that. So that's like an heirloom right there where it's, where it's being passed through. That just warms my heart. Just even thinking about looking at the, at the genetic line and, and seeing mom's weed, like that is the heart of cannabis and like the human relationship with the plant, right? When it's like, it's like pre the names, pre the, the, you know, categories for sale and and pre-competition between people it's just yeah this was this was our family's particular strain that we loved and we had at our holidays yeah i think i think that's a beautiful thing so all right so mom's heirloom so that's that's kind of more like heirloom where it's being passed you know just like heirloom furniture and such you're passing it through generations and then uh but then heritage strains would follow that same uh, pattern or, or sort of be in that same category, only that might be more widely uh, distributed. So, and a lot of times, uh, heritage or, or heirlooms exist only in uh, clone mm-hmm. cuttings form. I mean, they may back them up with seeds, but a lot of times things, you know, like train wreck, AK 47, uh, old school, even, even I guess like old school super silver haze, Northern lights and things like that. Those are more like the heritage, like original foundation, uh, strains that, uh, did get, uh, passed, passed around, uh, through the community. Um, so, yeah. So let's, let's go back to the poly hybrid then. So then cap off with that. So now poly hybrids and there's nothing, wrong or unethical or things to be snooty about with, <laughs> with polyhybrids. It's just now what seems to be going, and this isn't just, I mean, this is my personal opinion, but a lot of other folks um, are coming to the same conclusion is and if we're going to do our dog breeding analogy again, uh, most of the modern cannabis that's now on the scene is like the labradoodle times 10. <laughs> so now you've got labradoodles crossed to pug doodle or puggles back to a pit bull, back to a labradoodle, back to a cocker span doodle. And it's all this, and, and it almost doesn't even have any, um, necessarily any intention for like, oh, I want to create like a really racy, high creative uh, variety that tastes like passion fruit. You know what I mean? It's more, okay, gelato was hot last month. Wedding cake is hot right now. So we're going to cross those two and call this gelato cake. It, yeah, it just just on and, its face it sounds less reputable because you're you're breeding for marketing hype instead of breeding to go back to your dog example, breeding for the dog that take can take care of the sheep and feed itself in the wild, right? Like yeah. one has authentic human cultural meaning and the other one is for capitalism. And it's just yeah, it's like top 40 hits, like these just very 
just riding hype for the next 30, 60 days. It's almost like if people were hanging outside uh, like a dog show, you know, like a breeder's, I don't know, these kennel club dog shows. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, your dog won the best in terrier class and yours won the best in this. So how about we just cross them together? And so now we have a Doberman Schnauzer or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like the hot new dog that's going to win the next year's kennel club, you yeah. know? And then you just do that exponentially into, and that's where we're at now. We have like all these, whoever won all the cups or whatever is getting attention and you just cross all that stuff together and it's just become this muddled 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 uh genetics and the effects um it i mean it's not just me saying this i heard this confirmed and uh there's a lot of consensus seems to be going on in the community at this point that you can't really tell the difference between smoking runts or wedding cake or oreos or peanut butter cookie breath or whatever it's like it all basically kind of tastes looks and all kind of feels the same and unfortunately it's not um i mean everyone has different you know objectives and such with with their stonerism and what they're going for and such but a lot of people uh like that up like a creative uplifting inspiring clear head and such and and feeling active and kind of amplifying life where now a lot of the uh cannabis varieties right now seem to be more of uh like an opiate sedative uh kind of lethargic tired well it's that it's that <laughs> it's that myrcene dominance that's all through the modern commercial that, strains right and so it's just uh yeah so and to each their own it's not the beast not i mean there's a time and place for couch lock and such but uh but yeah if if every cannabis variety now uh, that you find at a dispensary gives you that same couch lock i forgot my name I'm just going to sit in my underwear and play video games and eat pizza. If that's this, the same effect you've, you've now, it's kind of like all, all the vast world of all these different dog breeds with all these different personalities and fun characteristics have now all been sort of hybridized and homogenized into this just blah, mm -hmm. <laughs> same exact uniform, kind of boring effect and you know you know it's it's not to the fault of the modern cannabis consumer or enthusiast either right because you know the vast majority like 99 percent of what's available is the modern polyhybrid stuff and you know i've been i've been a cannabis enthusiast for geez 30 35 40 years now something like that and um you know and and it wasn't until um, I came across um, my buddy shared with me some cuttings of an authentic um, Acapulco gold. And I'm like, oh, this is what all those people who were 10 years older than me were talking about, about because the high was yeah. so entirely different. And then and then I decided I'm like, well, I can't grow that 
here where I live outside. And so I was, I was able to get some, oh, actually he's from your area. Uh, Eric Miner of HBK Genetics. Um, he, he used to live in the, in the Santa Cruz region. Um, he, he's got this 20 week black Colombian land race that I grew indoors. And like those two plants are unlike everything else that I have smoked and, and have grown just because, and, and so you know, when, when, when you, when you say that, okay, the, you know, your, your, your pound cake tastes like your cookies takes, tastes like you're this, you're that, right. It's because the modern commercial cannabis is pulling from this very small pool of, yes. of, of, of commercially viable genetics. Whereas, you know, if those same people were able to get access to, you know, you know, equatorial plants and Thai and Colombia and all these, and then, and then smoke them against each other. Well, suddenly their taste palette has expanded. And now they see they, that they, they, they see that they've been looking down right at this particular genetic pool, but not the, not the global genetic pool. Exactly. And, um, so a lot of times when, when I break out, uh, yeah, like, an Acapulco or a, a Thai variety or uh, just right now <laughs> loving some stuff from Sri Lanka. <laughs> and by the way, a lot of these uh, land races that we're growing um, are seeds that were sourced back in the seventies. Mm. So it's not even, so you're geographically traveling and culturally traveling, but you're also time traveling. Oh, um, I like that. Yeah. So there's this myth that, now the weed uh, uh, today is stronger and better, but once you sample like a 1970s Pakistan or 1970s Sri Lankan or some of these old, you know, people who went on the hippie trail or, or worked at the Peace Corps in some of these areas and brought back seeds, uh, you know, from almost Wherever. 50 years ago. Yeah. And then you grow them out and smoke them and you're like, oh my God, that, yeah, the weed was incredibly psychedelic back then. Incredibly, it's like a whole different category. It's almost verging on psilocybin, like, you know, like a low dose of mushrooms. And, um, and a lot of the, a lot of the modern, you know, enthusiasts, they haven't had that opportunity. And, and so they're just all like, oh, but the, the percentage THC on those older strains were so low. And, and now I've got this thing that somehow is over 30 and, you know, and like, it's so much better, but, but a lot of these smokers don't understand the important role that, um, prevalent terpenes placed in those older strains in these and, untouched strains that, you know, they might be 12 or 18%. But their terpene percentage is so high, and that's what sculpts the high, the the experience that you have, and 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 that's where the real difference comes from. We're not; it's not about the THC; it's about the exactly. whole bouquet. So that's what's going. It's like the symphony orchestra. So yeah, you have the bassoons and the timpanis, and you have the cellos and your French horns going on and things. They don't play a major role. But they add so much texture and counterpoint and diversity within the sound that there's this whole communication going on. But now what seems to be going on with if there's only so much real estate on the cannabis plant. So if you're up at 30, 35% THC, 
that's kind of like the symphony orchestra. There's only so much stage. So that means you have to kick out all the other instruments <laughs> to make way for now. You have 200 violin players all playing the exact same note. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. And it's just playing the exact same melody. And it's still, you know, you, it's still music. It's still good. It's, still it's just going. not as complex. Yeah, you've just lost all that complexity, and now it's more of a one-dimensional buzz experience without, instead of this big symphony tapestry of textures and counterpoints and polyrhythms and such like that. So it's, yeah, that's kind of one analogy, and you could even go like, Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia style. I mean, let's not let's not go that. Way. Let's not go there. We only have so much show, and you and I are both deadheads, and, and that will be the rest of the show. So, okay. so I actually want to move forward off of the yeah. definitions, and yes. um, because we're we're coming up on a commercial not too far from now, so, but I want to okay. get some of these other ideas in here that um, you know sometimes let's 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 take a that black Colombian I mentioned earlier as an example. Okay, so. Yep. Um, you know, um, we, meaning cannabis cultivators that are growing now, we will get something like a a, a, a Colombian or 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 a, a Syrian or you know wherever this particular um, land race has come from, and and people treat it like that is um, not just an example, but that is the type of plant that everybody in you know, um, Colombia or Sri Lanka, you mentioned earlier, as if one, that one, um, plant is the only plant that is grown there. And, and, um, and, and, and I just like to, to talk to that idea because I think that that is a real common misnomer in the modern cannabis world that just because you've had one plant from, you know, a growing region that you've had what they have to offer, you know, and, and, I, and I just really feel like that that's probably not true. Yeah, that's so that's not reality. <laughs> and all you have to do is go to Mendocino or go to Big Sur, even go back and in time, you know, 50 years ago when things were, you know, more on the down low, but was every single family and every single grower growing the exact same genetics? And the answers, no, it's, it, and it's not in Sri Lanka or Afghanistan. There's not like a cannabis club where they all vote on what genetics every single cannabis which one is going to be the official genetic of their growing region yeah no they're all they're all doing their own thing but they're also kind of well one they probably you know are sourcing their genetics from similar gene pools just because the world hasn't been globalized for all that long you know Mm um so limited you know, genetic resources, they're, they're going to pull from things they have in the area. Uh, but then they're also, you know, going to also uh, select for things that do well in that same region. So you're going to have similarities, but are they all going to be exact carbon copies of each other? Um, and the answer is absolutely 
not. It kind of reminds me of your Huckleberry Hill example from earlier, where back in the genetic line is mom's favorite. Like, you know, in Sri Lanka, it's not they're just producing one kind. All these different families have got their mom's favorite. And so, you know, they've got just as much diversity as as we're experiencing now. Um, It's just that um, seeds are so hard to get from these areas that you know, one variety makes its way out and then, and then unfortunately becomes the example for the whole region because that's the only yeah. thing we're able to get. Yeah, but they, they will be similar, though. Mm. Um, I mean, what's happening now, though, in Thailand is all the Amsterdam and Cali genetics are coming in. Um, and polluting their land races. Uh, that's, that's the really scary thing. That's a whole other topic of discussion, but we may be experiencing a global land race extinction due to uh hybridization it's basically like if you know if you let labradoodles out to roam free and they went and basically copulated with every dog breed on the planet now everything's been doodled (laughs) and by the way i don't have anything against doodle i actually have a schnoodle uh schnauzer poodle uh, mixed dog, so they're but it makes it makes your dog. point though. <laughs> what I'm saying is, do we want to live in a world where every dog breed has been doodleized? Yeah, and uh, and every can- cannabis has been cookie cake gelato. You know, yeah. Um, right on. Well, hey, uh, I don't think I, I don't think I'm gonna top. Uh, uh, don't doodle your cannabis um, uh, anywhere <laughs> anymore in this uh, in the, in this first set. So let's uh, let's let's end there and go for a commercial break. And when we come back, we're gonna start talking about uh, uh, terpene profiles in land races. So um, let's oh, go ahead. Let's go ahead and take. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. All right. Can I say one other tiny, tiny little thing about yeah, yeah. the land race yeah, and sure, that whole uh, wild uh, sort of feral definition and such and this is a really important thing for uh, sort of ethics morals of of land races so the definition that some folks have worked up the wrong definition that uh land races are just kind of wild and feral and growing on the side of the road also sets up a situation of appropriation and complete erasing of the farmer who developed the land race variety you get what i'm saying yeah i do so here maybe in the u.s if you all of a sudden have some really cool uh thai variety you're if you're totally discounting that this is probably hundreds of years of genetic work by actual humans in Thailand, in, in whatever region or village who created this like totally sublime variety. If if you think that it was just growing on the side of the road, wild, all of a sudden there's no credit, there's no honor, there's no respect for uh, those farmers. And then you're more apt to just name it something or even call it your weed. And you've just erased uh, the, the human uh, work that actually got that strain to that sublime uh, state. So it's just really important for Landrace to also fully credit these amazing cannabis intuitive <laughs> breeders who uh, develop these like absolutely sublime uh, varieties. Uh, so a lot of human work went in to get them to this point. Um, and just because you took a vacation to Thailand and brought back some seeds doesn't mean 
you created that strain. <laughs> Man, that's a really good point. And I'm glad that I'm glad that you held me up to put that in there. So, all right. Thank you. All right. Yeah, so so yeah, now so. let's go to commercial. Uh, we're going to take that short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is land race specialist, Jeff Nordahl. And, you know, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know that you heard them on Shaping Fire. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynomyco on dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Fish Poop Brand Fertilizer is an all-natural fish poop concentrate with nothing added. Real fish poop is extraordinarily complex. Not only are you adding the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium your plants need to build mass, transport nutrients, and enhance flavor, but fish waste is also packed with biological activity and micronutrients. When you add fish poop to your irrigation water, you are adding life force, probiotics, and active microbes. These microorganisms include a wealth of various bacteria and protozoa, which further enhance nutrient availability for the plants. Because plants are limited by the absence of any essential micronutrient, these trace nutrients are the difference between having a decent garden and having a garden that makes you feel really proud of your efforts. Fish poop is a naturally complete solution that fills in the cracks in your fertilizer program to ensure you offer your garden a broad base of nutrients. Not all fish poop is created equally. Most products with added fish waste don't reveal their sources or lab results. Fish Poop brand Fish Poop, however, generates their own fish waste as a byproduct of their organic aquaponics cannabis farm where they raise ornamental koi and tilapia. You are even invited to tour their farm in person or on their YouTube channel to look for yourself. This sort of transparency is wildly rare in the fertilizer market. 
The folks behind Fish Poop are also lifelong medical cannabis producers who have deep connections in the community, donate more product than they sell, and support cannabis prisoner, veteran, and patient collectives and charities. To get your bottle of pure fish poop, go to fishpoop.com. And to see their entire line of cannabis products, go to ounceofhope.com. That's Fish Poop, brand Fish Poop. You've heard me talk about the award-winning cannabis seeds that come from the analytical breeding program of Seth and Eric Crawford, who founded Oregon CBD Seeds. In fact, Seth was a guest on Shaping Fire in 2020 to talk about triploid genetics. Seth and Eric are now releasing high THC seeds for home growers and farms as Grow the Revolution Seeds at gtrseeds.com. Their high THC seeds are extraordinary in that they will start to flower at 16 and a half hours of daylight instead of the typical 14 and a half hours of daylight. That means in most regions, your plants will start to flower outdoors in the middle of July instead of the middle of August, which means these photoperiod plants finish in September and not October, totally upending the photoperiod seed market. Seth and Eric took their prized early flowering CBG line and bred it to some of the most desired verified genetics out there, including Sour Diesel, Triangle Kush, Wedding Cake, Chem Dog, Skittles, and others. These crosses all express powerful photoperiod terpene profiles and THC, giving you a great high. GTR Seeds has a new THCV line with plants like Double Durbin and Gigantor that boast one-to-one THC to THCV, and people want that THCV. GTR Seeds are very consistent, true-growing, inbred F1s from stabilized inbred parent lines. These seeds are nearly homogenous, and the plants should all grow the same. There is only one phenotype in every pack available as diploids and triploids. Seth and Eric's company is still family-owned, patient and employee-centric, and partially powered by their two acres of solar panels. Everyone can purchase these seeds and the entire catalog of Oregon CBD seeds at gtrseeds.com. Go to gtrseeds.com today and choose something revolutionary for your next indoor or outdoor run. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is land raced specialist, Jeff Nordel. So in the first set, we talked a lot about what exactly land races are and how to understand them from different varieties of plants that may have come into this modern world in different ways so that we can really be precise in what we're talking about since we are talking about a scientific term. So that was really great teasing those terms apart generally. Um, But now here in the second set, I want to talk about um, a little bit about the characteristics of these plants and and why we generally all tend to respect them and why Jeff has, uh, you know, uh, focused so much of his life on it. So, so Jeff, you know, in your videos on your YouTube channel, you are uh, constantly talking about just being like like bowled over by the complexities of um, the terpene profiles. And and during the first set, we also talked a little trash about like modern polyhybrids and, and about how so many of them are massively mercine dominant. Um, but, but I want to tease out a little bit more um, about, uh, about the experiences that you've had in your garden um, with unique blends of terpene profiles. And, and like, you know, you don't have, and clearly you're not going to talk about all 300 that you're growing, but if, if, 
I want to provide the listeners with a snapshot of some of the experiences you've had. So, so maybe just like pick like yeah. three that were especially unique to you and, and describe them to us so that we can smell it through you. All right. As far as top three standout terpene profiles from this year's garden. And again, <laughs> every year we're doing different varieties from around the world. Uh, but the ones that are super fresh in my mind are uh, the Cambodian. Two varieties of Cambodian had the most insane passion fruit. Like just that tangy, zippy, sour, super tropical, loud, loud, loud passion fruit. Mm-hmm. And I actually uh, went and got an actual passion fruit. Fruit. Sniffed that and then sniffed one of these uh, Mandulkiri and then also Takeo, another region uh, in Cambodia. They smelled exactly the same, the actual passion fruit and uh, the cannabis, uh, at least those varieties of Cambodian. So that was pretty mind-blowing. Another terpene profile that uh, you rarely come across in sort of the uh, modern uh, polyhybrid genetics, but uh, which I'm a huge fan of, are the really stinky, skunky, rotten meat, burnt rubber, rotten onions, just super funk. Um, and a lot of times you'll find those in the Afghan, uh, Pakistani. Uh, we actually grew some Uzbek um, varieties this year. Um, and, and one of those smelled like rotten decomposing onions and garlic, mm. <laughs> really, really funky. It's almost, uh, disgusting, but at the same time, intoxicating kind of like the, uh, truffle, black truffle effect mm-hmm. <laughs> where it's gross, but intoxicating. Well, I, um, I, I love those cheeses that smell and, and smell like baby diaper, you know, like, like if, if it w- if that smell was coming out of a human, I'd be like, eh, but suddenly now on a, on a plate with crackers, I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> that reminds me, there's a really weird terpene profile, um, that actually smells like, uh, like bounce, dryer sheets oh, wow. like that really gnarly fabric and and by the way this is what's strange is i'm highly allergic to a lot of synthetic fragrances especially those uh laundry detergent smells so i just absolutely am repulsed whenever i smell that smell but then uh and i always said there is no smell in nature that smells like a bounce dryer sheet but i've actually grown some cannabis now that smells like bounce dryer sheets and it's kind of weird so who knows it may actually help me uh <laughs> get get through my dryer sheet aversion by uh smelling it in cannabis form it is really strange but, when you smell something in cannabis that you also exist in the real world uh this example isn't as great as yours but you know there is uh, the blueberry muffin uh, variety from humboldt seed company it's really startling how much it smells like the blueberry jiffy cake mix which yeah. is which doesn't you know it kind of barely smells like st- blueberries that are natural right it it smells like itself but it was so strange to smell that variety and be all like oh my god like okay this smells blueberry but it smells like 
the muffin box and those muffins themselves, which, you know, have got a little more of a, a breakfast cereal vibe to them than like a natural organic berry. And it's, it, it's a fantastic, uh, you know, variety. I've, I've grown it a long time and I love it. And yet it smells like a cheap boxed muffin mix. And it's just a bizarre yeah. thing. It, it is so wild. The diversity of aromas and terpenes that this cannabis plant uh can carry and provide and that can just sort of emerge from these plants and then when you start crossing plants to whole new combinations of all it's it's pretty mind-blowing i i'm not aware of other plants that have such a diversity of smells so I'm going to ask you one more terpene related question. I don't want to spend too yes. much time here because like, you know, not everybody can smell it together. Right. So it's it, uh, talking about terpenes is, is kind of challenging sometimes, but the, <laughs> the last question I want to ask you about this is um, tell us, tell us about one plant that you smelled where you, this, the, 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 the terpene profile of it was, was a smell that you had never smelled before. And it blew you away because you, your brain wasn't sure what to do to it. It'll probably be very hard for for you to describe it to me because of that reason too. Uh, yeah, it's almost like uh, seeing a color you've never seen before. Yeah, just and like there's that. just uh, yeah, your your brain just can't even process that. But yeah, there's a number of uh, varieties of cannabis that uh, come across in these land race botanical gardens we do every year that have just <laughs> it like scrambles your brain because you've never smelled anything like that. And so you, you can't even find words to describe it because it's such a bizarre smell. Um, so yeah, that happens quite a bit. And then you end up just sitting there sniffing it because it's, it's intoxicating just to have that experience. Yeah. So it's um, so engaging to have that first new experience. We humans go for those. Ab absolutely. Oh, Oh, did want to say the other really interesting terpene profile that you find in land races, uh, especially the African and Southeast Asian equatorials, is there's this really interesting um, carrot uh, parsnip uh, terp. So it's, and the, the reason how uh, I actually connected those dots was my girlfriend was actually peeling parsnips. And the smell that came from those parsnips, I was like, oh, that's that smell. <laughs> so it's that uh, sort of antiseptic, astringent, really earthy, sweet, fresh, fresh, fresh carrot parsnip smell. Um, but you'll actually see those in a lot of African uh, varieties, as well as uh, a Thai Chang Rai that we grew this year actually had that terp profile. Uh, and that's, that's always a favorite too. So while we're kind of going through your picture album, if you will, of, of, of the plants that you love, um, <clears throat> we've just did terpenes and I want to do a very similar thing, but with morphology now, right? So how the plant looks, it's structure because, um, you know, I love, uh, when you go through these different plants and I'm like, wow, these are all cannabis plants, but they all have got so much different visual personality. For oh, yeah. example, you recently post a video about one from, um, the 
island of St. Vincent. And, and I saw it and I'm like, now this is a plant that would work really well where I live because it doesn't grow big and bushy. It kind of grows like it grows kind of like straight up and down, like it's a pencil skirt or something. And yeah. um, it's very respectful of its neighbors, right? You can walk past it without it grabbing you like most plants do. So, so I guess kind of like you did with terpenes, maybe tell us like three of your favorite morphologies. Like tell us the story of like three plants that look atypical. Um, this year. And again, I'm just going off this year, sure. <laughs> every year there's mind blowing, uh, structures and, uh, but this year, a huge surprise was uh, Brazil Amazonia. So I was, you know, thinking that was going to be just a long, lanky, wispy, tropical, equatorial sativa type. This actually turned out to be super short, super squat, bushy, with big, chunky, thick buds. It, it grew and looked almost like an... Uh, a typical indica actually an even bushier stockier squattier uh indica uh but it has this wild um pina colada terp profile going this tropical fruit and then uh, when you finally get around to uh sampling it and smoking it it is super high electric almost like brazil uh, carnival kind of vibe <laughs> like bright colors and feathers and electric wow. and drum beats all in a very squat bushy actually early finishing these were all done uh by the end of september as well uh but super electric sativa stone so uh that was that was a big surprise um and also like super bulletproof as far as pest resistance and mold it's got all that uh, land race vigor still going Oh yeah, 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 and that's that's one of the beautiful things too about these land races is they're just so they're so much hardier and designed to not be high maintenance plants. Mm -hmm. um, so so anyway, they have yeah. We don't even deal for the most part with botrytis. Haven't seen powder mildew in ten years, wow. um, and uh, bug pressure is pretty low. The aphids are still kind of a menace <laughs> it's probably going to be around for quite some time they're kind of indestructible but um yeah so that's so anyway that that was one uh structure that was very surprising this year another yeah the saint vincent as uh you noticed uh even though we had unlimited root space so usually a cannabis plant when it has unlimited root space tends to the top of the plant will then become wide and bushy as well to mirror the root system. Uh, but for whatever reason, um, the St. Vincent just shot straight vertical and only was maybe a four foot diameter plant where a lot of ours are like eight to 10 foot diameter plants when grown in those conditions. So uh, for whatever reason, it just really wanted to st stay going vertical uh, and it got probably 12 feet tall with just really nice uniform sort of candelabra of uh, uniform flowers going. Um, have not sampled that one yet, but uh, had all the signs that it should be a it should be a nice one. Yeah, and, and and it's special too. I just like plants that that look different. You know, like, like even these mutants that you see people 
put online like i like mutant plants too it's like people are like oh that should be destroyed kill it get it out of the gene pool and i'm all like okay maybe all of that's true but also isn't it cool (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah and it may turn out to be a an advantageous adaption Mm -hmm. you know um that's kind of mutants drive (laughs) evolutionary change too so Let's let's talk a little bit about how the morphology um, responds to where these plants are from, right? Because a lot of these plants that come your way, these land races, they have themselves over you know hundreds or thousands of years have become hot or cold adapted for the areas that they are from, and so um, you know. Uh, I'm very willing to be wrong because I have not come into contact with as many land races as you have. But generally speaking, my impression is, is that, you know, equatorial plants where it is, um, you know, wet and hot, they tend to be more open, airy flowers so that, um, you know, they can uh, more easily uh, transpire and, you know, kind of respirate and breathe in the heat. And also, so they dry out really quickly after, you know, a monsoon or something like that. Whereas, so many of the the you know the 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 Pakistani and Afghani and you know things that are grown um you know near you know these 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 cold seasonal mountain reason regions they tend to have these like like tighter flowers and in my head it's always like oh so they can can conserve warmth and I don't know if that's true or not but but I just like to, to hear your thoughts after having interacted with so many of these plants how do you see these morphologies um you know uh, being associated with the different parts of the world that they come from yeah yeah absolutely and there definitely is um yeah the equatorial tropical sativas for the most part yeah share that um larfier airier uh flower structure for that exact reason because they're in a extremely humid moist environment and they might even be getting rain quite often um so yeah yeah so if if it was a super compact dense flower they'd all implode (laughs) you know within the first week of flowering um due to botrytis uh they'd probably mold out very quickly so uh yeah kind of across the board um the equatorial sativas all have that looser airy uh structure a lot of times uh very foxtaily like foxtails upon foxtails mm-hmm. but almost like a romanesca uh, uh <laughs> kind of you know fractals of like foxtails within foxtails within yeah. foxtail and uh but you'll find those are also crystal coated so they may not be heavy, but every nook and cranny is coated in crystal. So, so um, if you're just talking about straight resin yield, they might actually yeah. end up being a bigger one, a, a better choice, even though they're open and airy. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's another really interesting thing about... Um, but yeah, so that's equatorial, tropical equatorials. You'll see that pretty much across the board. But the amazing thing is these plants just don't mold they just botrytis just does not happen unless uh the only thing that gets the like the achilles heel of those tropical sativas is uh frost 
Mm. So, and as things start to get cold, if you do get frost on those buds, they tend to um, die <laughs> very quickly. Uh, so that's, uh, so that's the only thing. And even when they die, a lot of times you won't get uh, botrytis mold. You'll just get dead spots. Um, so they're just incredibly mold resistant. Um, now with uh, like Afghan, Pakistan, Iranian, those varieties, it's not just hot and cold, but those are also extremely arid environments. So very low humidity where uh, botrytis just isn't as much of a threat in those regions. So uh, the human um, uh, intervention with those has, has been to maximize yield. So you get more yield with a chunkier, heavier bud. And if you can push it without botrytis, you know, there, there you go. Uh, the problem is when you bring a super dense chunk Afghan all of a sudden into Santa Cruz coastal wet foggy environment yeah that's just a recipe for uh botrytis explosions mm -hmm. and that's and see that quite a, a lot of people have that experience um we're fortunate where we're growing we're behind a mountain range so that catches the marine layer so we're actually pretty arid in our place so we can actually pull off these um uh afghan pakistani yeah, it's pretty obvious from your Instagram that you live in a special bioregion because seeing all these different plants from all these different regions of the world all growing and finishing, like I've I've sworn at my phone before. I'm like, how the hell is he growing this? Oh my god, you know, because like I live at the other end, right? I live Pacific Northwest on an island, you know, 50 feet from crashing water that's marine and salty, right? So like I live a terrible place to grow myself, but where you are, it's it's like, you know, best possible combination of attributes. It's, yeah, and uh, it's San Lorenzo Valley in uh, Santa Cruz Mountains has a long, long uh, cannabis history. <laughs> and it turns out it's a real nice uh, little microclimate that, uh, yeah, stay, it's, it's blocked off from the marine layer, even though we're down in a valley. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to be super high elevation, uh, but uh, but we're behind a mountain uh, empire grade that actually catches that whole marine layer. So we just don't get that coastal fog. So uh, anyway, so so yeah. So, so the next thing I want to talk about is the the unique cultivation demands of land race, and that kind of fits in perfectly with the weather conversation that we're having, because you know I'm sure lots of people who are listening, like me, are being inspired by what you're saying, and we're all like, I want to grow land races, and and um uh, have you you know from from growing so many year over a year. Um, have you noticed any cultivation demands or best practices um, for land races? Because, you know, I imagine to a certain degree they are finicky uh, to us who are used to kind of growing all of the same plant because because these 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 modern plants that we've talked about earlier are, are, are very similar to each other. But but then you're growing all these weirdo plants, which of course are <laughs> land races and they're not weirdo, but like they are if you're a cultivator cultivator who has never grown them before. So, so let's, let's hear a little bit about that. Like, I'm, I'm sure that you have run into some unexpected growing needs that, that some of these varieties have. Uh, well, 
here's here's the very good news about Landrace is um, they're actually developed to be low maintenance plants. Huzzah! So real, we love hearing that. <laughs> so so a real finicky high maintenance like OG Kush, you know that uh, you know is going to have powder mildew and all this stuff. Uh, it it not to get back into the dog thing, but um, but it's kind of like you don't have to worry about with the land race, like the hip dysplasia and all this like kind of inbred mm-hmm, problems mm-hmm. with uh, susceptibilities to disease and uh, molds and, su- and pathogens. Uh, and it turns out actually with the hop latent viroid, uh, most land races, I mean, they can still get it, but don't seem to be affected uh, neg- as negatively as some of these polyhybrids too. Uh, so, so it's actually, Yes, all the land races, and we're growing them from all around the world from totally different regions. Uh, but because they're such hardy uh, plants that are designed to, you know, thrive without a ton of human uh, catering and pandering to the plant and pampering, um, they all do pretty, they have a they all seem to have a high tolerance to disease, molds, and pests. Um, so I, I actually think they're easier to grow than uh, most of the modern polyhybrids that tend to have sort of genetic disease built in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've they've actually yeah they've gone for potency, and who cares about? And, and when people say, oh, it's a challenging strain or a really finicky strain, there's another way you could say is that's kind of crap genetics. If you have a massively <laughs> disease-prone plant, that might actually be kind of crappy genetics. No one wants to yeah, be growing unless you're doing some adoptive foster thing for sickly plants or something. Why, why would you want to grow plants that you have to spray chemicals all over all the time to fend off diseases? How about just getting genetics that naturally fend off diseases? But do you, do you find that um, it takes some time with these varieties for you to figure out their like basic needs? Like I can imagine that these different plants from different places have got like different water requirements and different, um, you know, uh, food amendments requirements. Actually, not really. Oh, right uh, on. And I and I can totally see where you might think that, but uh, here's here's how we grow. Uh, we we don't actually really feed throughout the entire year. So what we focus on, and we uh, grow in a hugel culture mm-hmm. environment. Uh, so so where and, and what we do is we build a really super nutrient dense super rich living soil in the off season and then by the time we plop that plant in that soil come uh uh, june may or june we don't actually feed those plants throughout the whole year um so it's what we're doing is we provide an all-you-can-eat buffet of compost and organic nutrients that uh, along with all the uh, breaking down uh, forest debris uh, sticks leaves uh, chunks of logs and everything Mm -hmm. and so now you have all the mycelium that's just thriving in there so it's kind of like the plant um, 
can pick and choose what it wants. It's got an all-you-can-eat buffet, and everything's there at its root tips uh, to absorb. Uh, so that's that's how we actually grow. We supercharge and get really living, great, powerful living soil uh, in the beginning of the season. And then the plants just kind of adapt to that. So we're not at all running around going, oh, this, these Brazilians need some phosphorus or this needs <laughs> magnesium. Like we don't do that at all. Um, the only time is maybe some of these longer flowering plants that get super, super huge, uh, may just need a little bit of, uh, nitrogen later in the year. If they start, if they've gobbled up all the, uh, nitrogen, and a lot of times we'll do that with just a simple, like fish emulsion compost tea, uh, to just balance them out. But, but no, there's. These are not, um, yeah, they, they all basically, they're, they're all growing in the exact same soil with the same nutrients, same watering, <laughs> and they kind of, and they just kind of adapt. So when, when you're new to a land race and you don't know whether or not it's going to be, you know, a four foot wide or a 10 foot wide plant, do you just give all your plants the same amount of space and let them express themselves? Yeah. 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 And we're in a uh, fixed, we installed these hexagon uh, shaped uh, planter boxes. Uh, in the soil, so we're, uh, so you're not moving your grid every year or anything. It's yeah. Like, yeah. So and we gave them a lot of space because we designed the garden uh, for humans to be wandering around. This nice. is not a row crop yielding industrial garden by any means. It's it's actually a living art exhibit of uh, cannabis genetics from around the world, <laughs> and it's cool just growing, but then they make it. So much. It just sounds even. like a pleasure garden, dude. <laughs> oh, it, it, so so we we started this, and we started having uh, visitors out, and it was just so much fun. But this was pre-COVID, and then COVID hit, and you know we've kind of taken a break from having visitors out. Uh, and then the hop latent viroid had me really freaked out. Until now, I I, I have a much better understanding of the risk um, and such, and we're not in a high risk. Uh, of humans visiting and like <laughs> transmitting thank goodness so um but anyway yeah the garden's designed to actually for humans to wander around um uh, where each box actually has plenty of space in between so you can actually if you're wandering around socializing smoking a joy <laughs> and you resonate with a particular plant you can then walk all the way around the perimeter of that plant see it from all angles uh and, and such. So that's, yeah, we give the plants lots of space because we kind of see each one as like a, a work of art. Uh, and we want to give it its, its space to do its thing. <laughs> good, good. So um, how do you find that these, and, and like, I, I recognize that you're outdoors, so you may not have had to done a lot of this, but I bet you still have an educated opinion on it. Like how, how do these land races that have never, um, you know, been, cultivated by present growers how do they respond to things like training and scrogging and like kind of like, uh, like human dominance we don't well that's exactly it like um philosophically i 
I don't see my relationship with the plant as where I'm trying to dominate and squeeze out and maximize and exploit every molecule of that plant to pump out more buds for me. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, so we, we don't top, we don't leaf, we don't train. We, we're just, each one of these seeds is a mystery and we want to see what this plant's story is. So we actually step back and just let the plant do its thing. Uh, so we, again, we don't even leaf these plants. Um, and what, what you'll find though, when you let a plant just go natural, you, you kind of get a Christmas tree type shape. And then it may be like, hey, how, do, but how does light get into the inner buds? But the answer is as, as the buds get heavier on the tips of the branches, that actually opens the plant up mm. as the gravity pulls down those branches. So now all of a sudden the whole length of that branch is now sort of the entire plant is almost blooming like a flower <laughs> and opening up. And now all of a sudden the sun can get in to those uh, inner buds as well. Uh, but then we also do, because um, some of these plants are, you know, 12 feet tall, 10 feet diameter. I mean, they're huge. Uh, so we don't harvest the entire plant all at the same time. We do like a layered harvest. So we just take the top right buds and then that also allows the sun to now penetrate further into the plant and let those under buds develop. So we'll, we'll do three or four harvests off the same plant uh, while at the same time just watching. Yeah, we don't, we don't do, we've given up on all the human manipulations. Uh, the one thing we do though, I should know is as far as you do have to support the plant. Um, so we just put four redwood posts, uh, creating an out, outer, you know, a box of posts. And then we take, uh, organic hemp baker's twine. So it's actually food grade hemp twine. <laughs> and we just run that twine sort of like a big spider web around uh, the plant to support its branches. So, uh, but that's, that's all we do. So we're going to take in a short break and be right back. Um, when we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit about breeding land races and a little bit more about uh, preserving land races. So you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is land race specialist Jeff Nordahl. The cannabis seed market is filled with big name and hype breeders fighting to get your attention. And occasionally you discover a breeder who is breeding because it is the only thing they care to do, and they would be doing it even if they never made a dime. That's my friend Craig Hartsaw, who makes seeds as magnetic genetics. Craig comes from five generations of farmers and is earning his master's degree in horticulture right now. He's been growing cannabis for 15 years and been breeding for nine. He hasn't sold many seeds because he really isn't a sales guy, but I've personally been growing his seeds for years, and I know I can always rely on his seeds to germinate, thrive, and smell and taste great. I suggested to Craig that he should probably sell some seeds and asked if he had enough stockpiled to bother. Much to my shock, he was sitting on five full menus in cold storage that he produced in the last two years and hadn't even tried to sell any of them. He was simply too busy breeding. Well, we his friends convinced him to make his damn seeds available to the people, and now they are. For the first time anywhere, you can now buy magnetic genetic seeds at Neptune Seed Bank and on Strainly.io. 
Neptune Seed Bank has just picked up magnetic genetics for a trial to gauge your interest. They are carrying three strains from his Mean Mug, Prominence, and Turpinado menus, which are exclusive to Neptune. It's an easy way to score his seeds. You can pick up those menus plus his Hillbilly Skunk and Candy Breath Crosses and more on his profile page on Strainly.io. If you want very affordable seeds that are exceptional quality with rare terpene profiles from a good guy, go to NeptuneSeedBank.com or Strainly.io. Sometimes it is fun to buy the hype thing from the brand you admire, but when you're ready to buy the strain you'll love from an obscure mad scientist, you're ready for Magnetic Genetics. MagneticGenetics.org and on Instagram, Magnetic Genetics. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T dot com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Gas Lamp Seeds to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. You probably already know Gas Lamp Seeds as Hembra Genetics. Hembra recently changed their name to Gas Lamp Seeds. Gaslamp Seeds is not just another seed bank. Gaslamp is a female-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 60 breeders and over a thousand strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Gaslamp Seeds has something for everyone, with over 650 feminized strains, 300 regular varieties, and over 200 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust, like Compound Genetics, Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, In-House, Fast Buds, Gnome Automatics, and Ethos. And we both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Gaslamp to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it. 
Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you so fast. But Gaslamp Seeds cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. Want some extra freebies? Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout, and they will give you an additional set of gas lamp provided freebies. That's an extra $30 in free seeds. Buy seeds from good folks who will send you great seeds reliably every time. Visit gaslampseeds.com today. That's Gaslamp Seeds. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is Land Race Specialist, Jeff Nordahl. So here we are at the big finish, and you know, during the first set, we figured out what the hell land races are, and during the second set, we talked about why we have all fallen in love with them, and, and why anytime the flower is available, um, serious uh, weed heads are like on it, like catnip. Because we know that that is the special rare, rare thing that we just, you know, don't have as much access to anymore. And, um, and, and they're beloved for good reasons. So in this last set, we're going to talk a little bit about breeding with land races and then a little bit about preserving land races. So, so Jeff, you know, um, you know, we've already touched on breeding a little bit earlier in the show and, um, it's weird. It's, it's like it's a two sided coin, right? Like on one side, breeding with land races is exhilarating because we like the idea of taking whatever our favorite you know modern strain is and then and then breeding it to a land race strain to perhaps like increase its vigor or increase its resistance to pests or to grab some of those like you know old school land race terpene profiles whatever it is that we're trying to do or the, actually the other way um, try to breed a land race to a modern plant to like cut down on how many weeks it takes to flower. So there's, there's a lot of like reasons that we may want to breed with a land race. But the flip side of that also is that every time we, we breed a land race that is less of that land race that exists in its pure form for us to preserve for, you know, medicinal applications or for just enjoying that land race in and of its own right. So, so what are your, what are your, you know, I would just like to hear you speak to that about, you know, like, 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 are you crossing land races to modern hybrids or, and what are your thoughts about that? Um, yeah, so, uh, there's, there's two things going on when you're sort of deciding to work with land race plants. And, uh, so there's, there's, there's two goals. There's, uh, uh, preservation. So backing it up. So realizing that these are possibly at risk of going extinction. So, uh, do a seed, uh, re-up or uh, just uh, an inline breed where you're just preserving that uh, particular line of land race for preservation. Uh, but then you can go off and start playing around and experimenting and doing all kinds of crosses and uh, uh, genetic hybrid work. So those are both totally valid things. But if you just go uh, full-blown hybrid and then lose your it's again with the <laughs> with the dog breed thing you can't really take the doodle out of the doberman pincher you know once it goes in there yeah, so, once once you've so bred that okay. land race so all those attributes are all mixed together 
yeah, it would take lots of generations to try and back it out to get back to the original uh, variety or at least close to that. So, so there's really, uh, so there's preservation going on. And that right now at my stage in where I'm at in my cannabis adventures is we're popping new seeds every year, total mystery seeds uh, from these different uh, regions of the world. Uh, even sometimes going back in time to the 80s, 70s, 60s. And then we're observing those. And right now we're focused on preserving those genetics. And uh, to do that really well, uh, you can't just go skipping down into your garden with, you know, if you're trying to pollinate, let's say, a Vietnamese plant, uh, you may have your male Vietnamese from that same seed batch or hopefully like three, four, five males. So you're getting more genetic diversity. Uh, oh, by the way, that's another thing you're trying to do with your land race seed backups, your genetic backups, is you're not doing a lot of selection right then. You're actually trying to get the broadest uh, gene pool. So you want to use as many females and as many males from that variety as you can. So then when you make, let's say, a thousand seeds, you're trying to capture as much genetic diversity in that uh, seed backup mm -hmm. and those are just uh not primary colors but these are you know your foundation building blocks <laughs> of cannabis breeding that you want to keep pure uh uh but then once you have those locked in and you have those seeds where you're saving them in a good environment that they're going to last you know 10 years plus still be viable then you know then you have the freedom to go start making crosses and hybrids uh, that where you're, you know, trying to improve things or adapt things for uh, like here in California. Um, you know, I may absolutely love uh, like a, the, the effect, the high that you got from a plant from Laos, but it's a 16 week flower. <laughs> you know, it's very difficult to grow that outdoors here in California before the storms come in and just beat the crap out of the plant and it may even kill it, you know? Uh, so you may say, Hey, I, I want that louse effect, but in a plant that finishes, you know, in mid October. So then you, you have to start pondering what would be the least intrusive <laughs> early finishing <laughs> plant that might carry all the louse effects mm -hmm. with it on top of it you, you get what i mean so I that that's totally cool totally fair game i don't think that's disrespecting any cultures i don't think that's culturally appropriating um as long as you're crediting the the wider global cannabis community um and and then are transparent with how you create that variety like say yeah if if a thai and a laos plant and an Afghan went together, you know, document that and let people know that's where that plant came from. Those are its lineage. Then I think that's um, respectful as well to uh, the origins and the farmers who created these plants. Um, so that's that's totally, totally cool and, and fair game. But uh, the uh, sort of ethical, short-sighted, 
blunder would be to immediately, at least this is my opinion, just immediately start making hybrid crosses without backing up and preserving that original land race that may have taken hundreds, if not thousands of years to create that unique genetic. So When, when you uh, say back it up, would that just be a simple open pollination, like in a tent or something? That way you're not, you're not losing okay. the pollen into other plants, <laughs> but you just, you're just letting them okay. all make more seeds. Yeah, 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 yeah. So sorry, sorry, I kind of rambled on that. So the thing is, if you're dealing with a lot of varieties of uh, pure lines of land race, uh, you can't be sloppy with your pollen and uh, just bring pollen down into your garden and potentially have that pollen drift onto other plants. Right. Uh, so the the technique that I use that works well, but I'm open to other ideas if other people have come up with other uh, techniques that are work is anyway, what I do is we grow the land race plants out in our land race botanical garden. That's where you get the big 10, 12, 15 foot tall plants. But before those plants go into flower, I label each one of those plants with its variety plus its pheno number. So it might be Mexico, Jalisco, three out of four Jalisco plants we're growing. So this one's number three pheno, right? So I'll take cuttings off that number three Jalisco plant, take those cuttings to my other property, uh, root those cuttings, and now I have very small (laughs) versions of that plant that are now that are, now I'm keeping them in like a three gallon pot. So now when I need to go isolate them for pollinating, I can easily just move them around my property. and, and then uh, the males I keep in a, a separate area. And then we even isolate our males for a time to make sure some other plant's pollen is not drifting onto that male plant. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so so we know we're getting that, just that pure uh, pollen. And then that pollen gets taken to that very isolated cluster of, let's say, Jalisco number three. Uh, but... But when we're doing, let's say, Jalisco, if we had four plants, I would then put Jalisco one, two, three, and four cuttings all in one area, right? So we've got the cuttings all there. They're now in flower mode. And then I hopefully will have three, four Jalisco males. And I'll take all that pollen from all four of those males and then go evenly distribute that over all the uh, cuttings you got what i mean yeah i totally follow and i really like the idea i really like the idea that you take the cuttings early on when the plants in your main garden are in veg and then you just move them away because honestly before you explained that you had the second property i was trying to picture you safely pollinating these plants in your garden with all 300 land races and i'm like that sounds like hell man that sounds impossible (laughs) to succeed oh no yeah you 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 get pollen drift. I mean, you kind of have to treat pollen like Ebola. You know, it's like <laughs> it just gets everywhere. It will find a way. The the cool thing that most people know though is with uh, pollen, water will immediately render it non viable. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, that's another way 
to get a dirty hippie to shower a lot too is <laughs> <laughs> put him in charge of the pre plan. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll I take ten showers a day, if not more. You know, when I'm uh, in the middle of doing breeding projects. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's so we do kind of an open pollination, but we do it on just a very small uh, with small little cuttings. Um, and my understanding at least is that those, those cuttings from those original plants are the exact same genetics. So yeah. those, those seeds will be true to that plant. It just makes it, uh, you have a lot more agility and easily being able to, uh, isolate and move transport plants around for breeding. Cool. So I want to I want to continue down this uh, this preserving path that we've started on. You know, I think a lot more people are thinking about um, you know land races. You know, I, I guess I'm going to talk about two levels of magnitude. Generally, people are very interested in land races because, especially if they're connoisseurs, because so much of modern cannabis takes tastes the same. So the interest in land race is increasing, and they are seen as elite and very desirable. All of that's true, but also, um, you know, as as kind of like global travel uh, for cannabis people, you know, continues to increase, and along with uh, the technological ways to tell friends about them. We're getting experiences like, uh, like recently, a lot of people watched on Instagram, like uh, you know Kevin Jodry and Danny Montero and um, and IG Landrace Genetics. Like they put together a group of people and all went to Pakistan, right? And so, um, like I was, I was riveted by those videos of of like people who I know and my friends who are like suddenly in Pakistan, places where I normally only see represented in like mm. war and terrorism movies, you know. And suddenly they're all there, like wearing beards, um, you know, in Pakistan and interacting with the locals and and checking out their hash and checking out their plants. And I was all like, wow, this is great. Like, like I wasn't, you know, on this trip, but I, I feel like I, I got a bunch of these experiences from the trip. Right. And so it just increases the meaning and value of, of land race seeds and genetics in my overall head. And so I, I think that there's more and more people who are just interested in land races, which is good, of course, because, you know, the, 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 the land race origin areas like Thailand specifically are starting to get, um, uh, we're, we're like a bunch of our people are bringing seeds there and and developing them in Thailand, and so and so their natural land race is getting diluted, right? So all of this is to set up this question that um, you know I can see that land races are going to become increasingly popular, and yet we already are trying to preserve them for medicinal reasons. Um, I'd like to hear you speak to the idea of preservation and a. How do you think that um, land races are effectively preserved? And B, do you think there's any chance in hell that we're not actually going to eventually lose all the land races because they are a set number today, and that number is likely just probably going to continue to decrease? But maybe, maybe I've got an um, you know an especially jaded view of it. So I know that's a big question, but I'm just going to like hand you the mic and hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the extinction through hybridization is incredibly real, <laughs> and it's happening. Um, 
So yeah, a lot of people are sounding the alarm like, hey, we really need to start uh, backing these up uh, before they all go extinct uh, as far as these land races. So, um, and yeah, so, so yes, that is really happening. And um, so, so uh, the so extinction is a real concern. Period. Uh, Full stop. Abs- absolutely. Um, and and it's not just uh, like pollen drift. It's actually, you know, folks, we're going to get to a point. I mean, we, we romanticize here in the U.S. We may romanticize this little secluded fantasy village, you know, in the Himalayas. <laughs> you hike up to and you think you're going to find this like amazing weed that's grown by monks or something, or the whole village like grows this magical weed. Uh, and you take this trek up there and you get up there and they're like, Hey, we got cookies. <laughs> we got Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're growing uh, gelato and diesel and OG and, uh, Oh, that's the kind of cookies that you mean. Ah, you mean yeah, genetic? that's. I, I thought you meant no. like Western foods. You mean no, 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 I no. It, I, I mean, it. it may be that they're like blasting. I mean, no, it's, it's cool, but yeah, yeah, they may be actually blasting Snoop Dogg and growing, you know, California strains yeah. up there. Yeah. And and uh, we of course romanticize that they're supposed to stay isolated and unique. Uh, when in reality, they want to. They want to grow the hype and too. <laughs> they want to integrate, and they they're watching stuff in California and Amsterdam, thinking that's that's really cool. Why would they want to grow grow their grandfather's old larfy weed? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, these are just like cultural phenomenons and things that happen, and, and there's no judgment or anything. You just have to realize that that's this. These are things that happen. Um, so. Uh, there seems to be some value in preserving these genetics. And a lot of these genetics, um, you know, could go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And uh, they're kind of, uh, in a way, almost like cultural biographies or even autobiographies from the actual breeders. You know, Like, like antique art is, too. Yeah, and they're infusing. So it's a plant, but it's also infused with uh culture's values and their stories and so so in a way it's almost like their uh cultural part of their cultural story too you know just like their food and their seasonings and dishes and And dance and and religion and and the, the the cannabis is a reflection of those values and aesthetics that they've chosen for um so it'd just be a super bummer to have those disappear and uh just get hybridized or 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 such um and then you know once once some of these cultures also may go through like you know the hype phase (laughs) there may be in like 20 years all of a sudden a re-interest in in their heritage genetics and if if someone wasn't backing this stuff up you know it may be gone um and it may be that they actually have to look outside to other people who who happen to keep those genetics, you know, in their from their trip that they took to that region. They've been keeping them in their sock drawer for the last twenty years, you know. So um, there just seems it doesn't seem to be negative 
in any way by uh, backing up and preserving these genetics. And it just seems like a good long view uh, strategy that there is value in keeping these uh, genetics around and preserving them, if, if nothing more for just historical purpose. But I'd argue there's probably tons of medicinal uh, compounds and terpene combinations and such that may actually have some real uh, medicinal value uh, it going into the future and uh, and then just the effects and everything else. So there's, there's a lot of incentive and reason that uh, these genetics really should be backed up. So, um, um, and, and, and lots of different people around the world are, are playing different parts, either by uh, gathering and hunting uh, these seeds and actually just collecting them. And then other people are <laughs> sort of distributing them as hubs, mm-hmm. you know, for people who are uh, interested in access to these genetics. Um, something that we've sort of toyed around with here in uh, Santa Cruz and something that I'd, I'd really like to be a part of and even potentially work with uh, a larger organization uh, who has like grant money and such, but to actually put together um, an actual cannabis uh, seed bank, like a public domain seed bank to try and back up especially uh, as far as land race genetics, uh, try and back up and preserve as much of those genetics as possible. But then very important philosophically, um, that would be public domain where everyone would have access to these. There's no proprietary ownership uh, of, of any of these genetics. Um, and you'd be, uh, you'd be preserving them for their own right. You don't mean like a seed bank, like people use seed bank now very often as just like a seed bank store or a seed bank distributor oh, where, no, no, no. where, where the, there's a, there's the profit moffit motive primarily. You're no. talking about a more classical seed bank, like, like those of us who save seeds, right? Where you're like, like the, you're making yeah, the, a library the seed preservation. Yeah, yeah, like the seed preservation that's, you know, going on in Norway or wherever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is. That big building that uh, unsurprisingly flooded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that those kind of uh, seed banks and uh, like here, UCSC, uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, um, did something else, which was the Human Genome Project, mm-hmm. where they mapped the entire human genome and then put that in the public domain. So they were in a race with some of the pharmaceutical companies and researchers who wanted that information to be proprietary. <laughs> but uh, UCSE and our sort of hippie for the community sort of vibes, at least UCSE decided to put that all in the public domain. So it was the Human D- Genome Project where anyone uh, can actually access uh, that information. And we'd like to see in that spirit uh, something with a cannabis uh, seed bank or library or archive where everyone would have equal access uh, to all those genetics for, you know, there'd be a procedure to obviously to, to get them, but uh, where, yeah, where they're available to everyone because we kind of come from the philosophy that Humans did not create cannabis. It came from the universe. 
And so who who are we to claim ownership? It's cannabis is here for the people and the magic of it is connecting more people in a positive way uh with with cannabis like that that has the potential to actually shift things in a positive trajectory uh, for this plant but if we're going to start playing these uh ownership proprietary exclusive uh commercial dollar chasing games with a plant that generally when you consume it <laughs> a lot of times has the opposite effect or opposite message <laughs> that that would be yeah that's definitely in the spirit of just the cannabis experience is making things available to to everyone in equal access share the share the love that's I beautiful guess, break it down. cool man well i i think that that's a great place to stop on that message i really i really love that and 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 so Jeff, I want to I want to first thank you for uh, I know your time is valuable, and you know this time of year is really busy as as you know you work through you know your plants coming down and curing and all that, and so so thank you for making time for us number one, and then number two I'm I'm really grateful like kind of like for you as as your personality you know you're such a, a chipper easy to like guy on your Instagram and and that is exactly you know how you showed up authentically here today I I, I can't imagine there's anybody who's been listening to the show who wouldn't like a like to hear you talk more and then b wouldn't enjoy like sitting down for like lunch and a chat on your deck with you you know you're just you're such an amiable dude with like such vast experience on this very particular topic that we all get giddy about so so thank you for for coming on to shaping fire and 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 sharing with us your experience cool well it's been a been a pleasure thanks for the interest and uh yeah in some point in the future our our plan is to actually have people come out and visit our our property so we can just sit there and geek out and nerd out and stand there in awe staring at these amazing <laughs> plants so so that that is the goal and uh with covid and everything it made it tough to have visitors so those videos that you've watched really is is coming from that um uh intent is actually wanting to share share these plants with others and inspire others to take a closer look and maybe delve in to uh the unlimited infinitely fan uh amazing land race world fantastic all right so so in wrapping up dear listener um if you would like to uh keep tabs on uh jeff and his uh land race amusement park that he runs um uh, i recommend at the top of the list um you follow him the way i do on instagram and so that's really easy that's jade nectar all one word now, uh, that, that is an absolute have to, if you want to know more about, uh, Jeff and, um, his, uh, medicinal preparations, he is a, an expert in the acid forms of cannabinoids. Uh, he even holds us patents, which, uh, is not something that we uh, was on the topic today, but he's a very interesting cat. So you can find out more about that aspect of his goodwill at his, at his website, which is jade 
connector.com. And then finally, um, if you want to see uh, sometimes longer forms of the videos that are on the Instagram, um, you can also search uh, Jade Nectar uh, on YouTube uh, for, for some of the longer forms of the videos. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.